Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Writer David Quammen's working life bounces back and forth between topics such as grizzly bear conservation in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and the study of lethal viruses that emerge from bats and chimpanzees and rodents in places like the Congo, where he's done most of his reporting for National Geographic. David Quammen is author of several books, including The Song of the Dodo, The Reluctant Mr. Darwin, and Spillover. That's a work on the science, history, and human impacts of emerging diseases, especially viral diseases. That was shortlisted for eight national and international awards, won three. More recently, he's released two short books drawn from Spillover and updated to standalone Ebola from last year and The Chimp and the River. It's about AIDS in 2015 this year. And uh, his uh, articles have uh, appeared in Harper's, National Geographic, Outside, Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and other publications. He's a contributing writer for National Geographic, and uh, he lives in Bozeman, Montana. He'll be presenting on Yellowstone National Park at the Shift Festival in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and that'll be on Thursday, October 8th at the Center for the Arts there. David Quammen, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to be with us. And understand, coming up next year, uh, this is the first time in National Geographic's history that uh, one issue, I believe it's May, will be devoted to the writing of one writer, and that's that's you. Well, I yeah, it, that's true. I, I'm not I'm not sure I'd say that the issue is devoted to the writing of one writer, but the <laughs> issue will be written by one writer. It's devoted to the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Next year, as you know, is the centennial of the National Park Service. At National Geographic, we're doing a series of articles on the national parks and the national park idea, and the May issue will be devoted entirely to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, and yes, the editors have asked me to write the whole issue. Uh, so, and you'll be presenting on this at Shift. Um, so what, uh, give, us, give me a range of what uh, will be included in that, that issue, what, what types of issues? Well, it's a tricky... Uh, <laughs> It's a tricky challenge because essentially the editors said, all right, David, you figure it out. Two million years of geology, centuries of prehistory and history, management issues, uh, scientific issues, predator-prey relations, wolves, grizzly bears, elk, bison, etc. So I had to boil that down into about 15,000 words, which is what one issue amounts to. And I have touched on most of those things, but I have focused in particular on the grizzly bear at the core of the Yellowstone ecosystem, the rebound of the grizzly bear population over the last 30 years, the dangers that still face the grizzly bear, and the way those those issues related to the grizzly bear uh, stretch out into really all of the issues that face us with the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, including climate change, including invasive species, including the fate of private lands, ownership within the ecosystem. So I've tried to tried to tie a lot of things together um, using the grizzly bear as sort of the hubcap for the wheel. Uh, it would be a fascinating issue. We'll look forward to, uh, to reading that. Um, I want to talk about an article you wrote in 2006. You were in a series of articles about the national parks. Um, I believe this came from 06. Uh, you talked about the impermanence uh, of the idea of national parks, and you sort of a sur- brief article, but you sort of surveyed or looked at, and there's a map of national parks around the world, and uh, you talked about this, the tensions around around this idea, and the fact that, uh, you know, set aside forevermore, uh, the definition of forevermore is, is very important. 
Well, that's true. A park protected once is not necessarily protected forever. I've written about national parks off and on over the years, and I'm not even sure I remember exactly the article that you're talking about. But one of the points that I've made about national parks is that they are almost by definition islands. We set aside a particular area and we say, this is going to be a national park. This is wild landscape. We are going to protect it. We are going to um, put restraints on how humans use it, even how many humans can go there. Um, And it becomes um, almost by... um, uh, almost faithfully, uh, an ecological island. Things uh, that are allowed to happen outside the boundaries of the national park are not allowed to happen inside the boundaries. Um, the the land inside is protected in special ways. The animals are protected in special ways, which is great, but it also uh, uh, raises this situation where the park is insularized. Uh, now, in the case of the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, it's not one national park, it's the entire ecosystem, which includes, as we know, two national parks, Grand Teton as well as uh, Yellowstone, and um, a lot of wilderness areas, some tribal areas, some um, some national wildlife refuge area, a big amoeboid shape oh, running to about 18 million acres of protected areas and wild areas that are surrounded by um, the modern West. And fortunately, the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem is a large island, and so it can can support more biological diversity and populations of animals that need more space, such as the grizzly bear, um, such as mountain lions and wolves, the full complement of predators and prey. Um, but this um, this island aspect is very important with parks in the U.S. and parks around the world. We have to remember that islands are where species tend to go extinct and that our national parks uh, are islands or are becoming islands, and um, and we need to keep that in mind and deal with that and retain as much space there as we can and ideally connectivity from one island to another so that wildlife populations ideally can move back and forth among them. Yes, and you write in this article, uh, these boundaries that you talked about are merely statutory membrane through which the park, like a living cell, must be able to breathe. And you talked about that, that... Uh, this part of a whole system, including political, economic, and that these you know, its forces and arguments go back and forth. And so, what, eternal vigilance about this? Is that what's needed? Well, eternal vigilance, yes. Um, a political realism, uh, a certain careful balance between um, the, the rigor and the... Um, uh, uh, and the persistence of our protection of these areas, um, and that has to be balanced with the, the fact that people want to get in there, people are developing private lands around the perimeter of those places, to what extent um, do we put constraints on how the land is used, and um, to what extent is it impossible for us to put constraints on that. In the case of the Greater Yellowstone, coming back to our, our re- own region here, for instance, there is the the issue of private lands surrounding the protected areas of the Yellowstone ecosystem. Some of those private lands are large ranches, large cattle ranches, uh, and those large cattle ranches are, in many cases, extremely important for the elk population. 
elk migrate down off of the Yellowstone Plateau in winter when it becomes very forbidding, too cold and too snowy up there. They migrate down to lower elevations. In a lot of cases, those lower elevations, those areas of winter range, are private lands, large ranches. What happens when those private large ranches, some of them, are sold? Um, Generational changes are coming. Um, An old ranch family decides that they... um, they can no longer make a living ranching cattle. Uh, they decide that the, the next generation is going to subdivide that land. Subdividing the land takes away crucial winter range for the elk, and it has effects all the way back into the core of the ecosystem on, for instance, the grizzly bears who prey increasingly on elk calves as one of their major food sources. So there's a really complex interconnectivity of the ecological issues, the um, the protection restraints within a national park, and um, the uh, the democratic process and uh, uh, the commercial considerations that are going on on private lands surrounding this wild area. Hmm. You uh, you quote a you call it a doer saying uh, among conservation professionals: "All our victories are temporary; only the defeats are permanent." You end this article by saying, offering a slightly more cheerful variant, you say, our national parks are as good, only as good, as the intensity with which we treasure them. That's that's what you've been talking about here. That's right. And that certainly is still the case. It's the case with Yellowstone. One of the things that interests me, and I may talk about this next week at the SHIFT conference, about, um, about Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks is the concern that we are loving them to death. I think Yellowstone this summer... Um, visitation to Yellowstone Park was up something like 20%. I haven't seen the final figures yet. I suppose the final figures aren't quite in yet because people are still there. Even after Labor Day, I've heard that Yellowstone is still pretty busy this year, and I suspect Grand Teton also. So you've got 3.5 million visitors coming to Yellowstone in the course of a summer. You've got almost that many, I think nearly 3 million, coming into Grand Teton National Park. Many or most of those people are coming with private automobiles. There's more and more stress on the resources. Are we going to reach a point in the future where the Park Service has to say, well, we're sorry, folks, but you can't bring your private automobiles into Yellowstone National Park anymore. We welcome you to come to the gate and get on the shuttle with everybody else. Is that coming? It might be. Some of the park's managers are are wondering aloud, uh, uh, what to do about that issue and, and what sort of um, reaction the public and, and uh, the political sector may have if that, uh, if that sort of um, uh, a measure needs to be considered. Mm. One, of the, one of the tensions that uh, we often hear about is parks versus people. You know, it's, it's, it's made for the enjoyment of, of the American people in this case. But, yeah, we we may love them to death, and then what restrictions might need to be be set. Right, and the parks versus people issue also goes in the U.S. and around the world to the question of uh, who, who inhabited these, quote, wild um, areas uh, before uh, European Americans arrived and started saying, oh, gee, this is a beautiful area. Um, we're going to set this aside as a national park. In the case of, again, the greater Yellowstone area, uh, there were Native American groups, the sheep eaters and other groups, who were were using that landscape. And so 
when Yellowstone, for instance, was set aside in 1872 uh, by a bill creating the National Park signed by Ulysses S. Grant in 1872, setting aside Yellowstone for the, um, for the pleasuring of the people, um, it really was implicitly talking about um, the pleasuring of white European American people, and it was too bad, sorry, Charlie, for the Native Americans who had been using that. Um, that's something that's part of the complex and, uh, and wonderful legacy of, of some of our great national parks, including Yellowstone. Hmm. How, how is the national park idea faring in other parts of the world? Well, it certainly depends on uh, on where you go. I, I do a lot of reporting from Africa for National Geographic, and um, and there I've I've done stories on the, uh, the Serengeti, which is a magnificent um, national park in East Africa in Tanzania that contains huge grassland savanna savanna ecosystem filled with with lions and and wildebeest and zebra and giraffe and leopards and all sorts of magnificent wildlife, uh, and uh, and it's a, a, a terrific place, and yet it's not untroubled with with people versus protection issues around its perimeters and, and issues of how much traffic, how much use can there be inside the park. Um, elsewhere in Africa, the nation of Gabon in western central Africa uh, about 15 years ago declared 13 new national parks uh, protecting some wondrous jungle areas, uh, tropical forest areas in the country of Gabon. And that was the result of work by a number of people, including uh, uh, a terrific American explorer, ecologist, conservationist named J. Michael Fay, who made a 2,000-mile survey hike through the, the last remaining intact forest of Central Africa, including a walk all the way across Gabon, and identified, helped to identify and helped to uh, describe um, some of these remote areas that deserve protection. We did a series on that for National Geographic. It was called the Mega Transect Series because he was doing a grand biological transect. Um, and, and I was the one who wrote those articles, traveled with him for weeks at a time. And one of the results of that was that the president of Gabon declared 13 new national parks with the stroke of a pen, or with 13 strokes of his pen, uh, to protect some of those great areas. And, uh, and so Gabon is one of, the, um, one of the leading countries in the world in terms of um, setting aside national parks for the protection of its wildlife legacies. So the idea of national parks and the practice of national park making and maintaining around the world is a complex of stories, good news and bad news, but... Um, it's very vibrant, very much alive, certainly. Yeah, I was, I was just reading, uh, you know, among some articles in preparation for this interview, um, apparently the president of Gabon, he, when presented with the, I guess, the evidence from the mega transect, was a bit incredulous. The, these, this incredible landscape is part of my nation, and then I, and then I guess that led to the That's creation right. of those national parks. That's right. Uh, seeing the articles, seeing the... The video, the movie that came out of Mike Faye's uh, mega transect, the president at that time, it was a man named Omar Bongo, was astonished uh, and and moved to see these riches within his country, um, the elephants, um, the uh, the gorillas, the, the forest antelope, the birds, 
um, the hippopotamuses and the elephants that were along the shore, the seacoast of Gabon. Uh, he was so moved by this that he, he said, I want, I want 13 of these areas that you've described to be national parks. Get the paperwork on my desk. Uh, and his son at that time uh, was uh, Ali Ben Bongo, was defense minister of the country, and I interviewed uh, Ali Ben Bongo, and he told me, you know, this, these, these magnificent things, I never knew they were here. My family never knew they were here. We didn't get out into the forest. Most Gabonese don't get to see this. He said, I went to school in the U.S., and I had to go to the San Diego Zoo to see a magnificent snake called the Gabon Viper, native to Gabon. And now I learn that you fellows have been out there stumbling around in the forest, running across these Gabon Vipers in some of these areas we're protecting. And uh, he, he said it, it, it really uh, serves as an important reminder and an incentive to his father and to his family to protect these areas. And that man, Ali Ben Bongo, is now the president of Gabon, having succeeded his mm-hmm. father. Wow, amazing. That must be very gratifying to Michael Payne, to yourself, to, you know, to have gotten the word out, and then that had that concrete effect. Well, uh, it was gratifying to us, but the credit goes to, to Mike Fay, this amazingly dedicated, hard-bitten conservationist. I've just, uh, some, of the, some of the best time reporting that I've ever spent and getting into wild places uh, was the time I've spent with Mike Fay, uh, bushwhacking across the um, the forests of Republic of Congo and Gabon. It was just uh, it was just an amazing experience, an amazing opportunity for me. And uh, and there's nobody quite like him. Uh, I want to go to a break here shortly, but I, I wanted to ask you about the mega transect. What what was Michael Fay's goal? What was he trying to accomplish there? Well, he had been in. Uh, Central Africa for about 20 years, trying to do conservation and also taking these grand, ambitious walks. And he finally decided, I want to do a walk across all of the great remaining forest areas of Central Africa. He mapped it, um, and it was about a 2,000-mile zigzag line through the thickest parts of these nearly untouched forests. He wanted to discover what was there to catalog it, to create this great biological survey, this database, so that when decisions were made as to what to protect and what had to be sacrificed, those decisions could be made on the basis of uh, good quality data um, that he had gathered. Let's take a a break and we come back more with David Quammen. Uh, You've likely read his work. He uh, writes a lot for National Geographic. Uh, The latest article, uh, I believe, was on uh, Ebola. And we'll get to talking about that as well. Uh, David Quammen's work has uh, has centered in part on, uh, is it zoonotic diseases, zoonotic? Um, um, I hear it both ways, Tom, but I, I usually say zoonotic diseases. Yeah, the diseases that pass from animal hosts into humans. Which would include Ebola, AIDS, uh, SARS? Absolutely. Yes, a whole six, actually 60% of our infectious diseases come from animal hosts. Uh, so there's a whole, uh, yeah, there's a whole rogues gallery of these diseases, viruses, and other things that come from non-human animals and get into humans. And uh, of course, with Ebola, for to take one, just one example, there, there's still a mystery. We don't know where it goes between. Outbreaks. That's right. That's what my July article in National Geographic is about: the continuing search for the reservoir host of Ebola. We still don't know where that virus abides when um, when the outbreaks are over, when it's not killing humans. It has to live in some animal in the Central African forest, but we still haven't managed to identify which animal that is. 
We'll talk about that and much more following a break. New York City provides shelter for tens of thousands of homeless people thanks to a very careful reading of that state's constitution. You know, at the end of the day, the best argument I had was, Your Honor, the word shall provide emergency shelter means shall. Shall means shall. That's not complicated. I'm Kai Rizdal. How a grad student and a lawyer made it happen. The story next time on Marketplace from APN. Join us Wednesday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University, Uinta Basin, offering over 45 accredited degree options, including human services, sciences, and natural resources. More information at uintabasin.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're very pleased to have with us writer David Quammen. His working life, as he says, bounces back between topics such as grizzly bear conservation and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem close to home and the study of lethal viruses that emerge from bats and chimpanzees and rodents in places like the Congo, where he's done most of his reporting for National Geographic. David Quammen, his books include The Song of the Dodo, The Reluctant Mr. Darwin, and Spillover, which won several awards. That's from 2012. Uh, talking about the zoonotic diseases that we uh, were talked about just before the break. And he's uh, excerpted or, or made two standalone books now from Spillover and updated uh, Ebola from uh, 2014 and The Chimp in the River, which is about AIDS from uh, 2015. And his articles appear everywhere from Harper's National Geographic to The Atlantic to uh, Powder to Rolling Stone. Lives in uh, Bozeman. And uh, David Quammen will uh, be coming to uh, Jackson, Wyoming, uh, for the Shift Festival, and he'll be presenting on Yellowstone on Thursday, October 8th, at the Center for the Arts there in uh, in Jackson. We're talking about national parks, and we'll talk about the zoonotic diseases as we go along as well. By the way, the May 2016 edition of National Geographic will be devoted solely to Yellowstone National Park, and there'll be one writer. First time it's happening in uh, National Geographic's history, and that'll be David Quammen. Uh, David Coleman, I want to, before we get into zoonotic diseases, I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, the national park idea. Uh, I want to get into it too, with uh, your article recently on Franz Josef Land. By the way, I, I uh, when I read National Geographic, I'd, I'd really like to go to the frozen north, and I think I, it, it's nice because writers like you go up and, and get frozen, and I don't have to, but I get to read about it. Uh, so this, in, this involves Michael Fay as well, I believe. That's, that expedition. Uh, that's true. That's true. And that was almost just a happy coincidence. I was asked to do a story on this expedition. It was, uh, uh, it was organized by a fellow named Enrique Sala, who is a marine biologist and a scuba diver. And um, he goes around the world um, gathering teams of biologists who scuba dive to, uh, to survey biological diversity of island areas that are worthy of protection. And he's mostly done this in the tropics, in the beautiful warm waters of the tropical Pacific. And he's been involved in helping to leverage the creation of some marine protected areas and national parks among islands of the Pacific. Well, then Enrique got the bright idea of going to the far north and looking at a group of islands that are above the Arctic Circle, um, Franz Josef Land which is this cluster of islands that that belong to Russia that are in the far, far north. 
Uh, and so he gathered this group of scuba diving biologists, and National Geographic was invited to send along a team. I went. Um, a wonderful photographer uh, based in Colorado named Corey Richards was my photographic partner on that. He took the, the still photos for the article that, that ran in National Geographic. And so we spent six weeks on a, on a Russian boat with uh, two teams of biologists, one this uh, group that Enrique had gathered, uh, who were Americans and Spaniards and sort of an international team, and the other was a team that Russia sent. And, um, and these people went out there every day and scuba dived looking for biological diversity, uh, fish and different kinds of algae and marine mammals, et cetera, in this, in this water that was about one degree above freezing. Um, I did not dive. I spent my time walking on the islands with the, the sort of the land-based crews that were surveying plants and animals and birds, et cetera. And, uh, and Mike Fay went along on that trip because he is a, he's a botanical expert as well as a tropical explorer. And so we had a, a fine old time um, exploring Franz Joseph Land and, and um, trying to keep from freezing our tushes off. <laughs> and Franz Joseph Land is a nature reserve, I believe, but there are pressures. You, the military has been there. Uh, if if they discover oil, I guess nearby, there'll be pressures on on that land. That's that's right. Uh, there was a military base there during the Cold War. They were sending bombers out to circle the North Pole, just as we in the U.S. were sending bombers on sort of um, permanent readiness patrol around the North. Uh, fortunately, those days are over, at least for now. Uh, and the uh, the air base has been has shrunk and been decommissioned. There still is a lot of military junk at that particular spot. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Franz Joseph Land has received protected status. And, and I haven't heard the latest on this, but part of the reason for going there, part of the reason that Enrique Sala organized this international expedition was to find, um, uh, gather data that would support increasing the protected status of Franz Joseph Land, raising it from sort of a, um, a general marine uh, island reserve to the status of a national park. And uh, the latest I've heard is that that is moving forward. I think we're very close to getting that status for Franz Joseph Land. I can't tell you the latest on that, but um, it seems to be making progress. And, uh, and it'll be a great thing if it happened. But, of course, as climate change is... Uh, is shrinking the glaciers and, and the sea ice in those areas, it becomes all the more likely that um, cross-the-pole shipping is going to be moving through some of those areas, and that may have implications. There's a lot of attention now going to the, um, to the possibility that, that the shrinking of the ice is going to open um, shipping corridors across the north, and there are going to be um, dangers uh, to the seas and to the wildlife connected with that. This is an effect of global warming that we sometimes we don't hear about. It uh, shipping lanes opening up, and then there'd be you know pressures there. That's right. That's right. And I spent some time while I was on that uh, expedition with a Russian woman who was studying the zooplankton, um, the little uh, uh, swimming creatures, the, um, the the animals and the plants, the, the phytoplankton and the zooplankton that. Um, that serve as the base of the food chain um, in oceans generally and certainly in the far north. Uh, these tiny little creatures that just float like, like pollen 
in um, in the oceans and are eaten by slightly larger creatures and by huge creatures such as baleen whales. Um, very important, um, and diving birds also um, live on some of these these creatures. And um, and she was finding this Russian woman um, that uh, the constitution of the, the nature of the, the zooplankton was changing as the waters warmed. As warmer water started to flow up from further south as the ice melted, the nature of this, these um, planktonic creatures was changing in ways that might affect the food chain. Again, very preliminary results, but in accord with what we're hearing all over the world about the, um, the ecological uh, impacts and potential impacts of climate change. If the zooplankton changes and uh, it becomes uh, characterized by creatures that, um, that do better in warmer water, then there are likely to be effects on the filter feeding creatures and the diving birds that rely on those kinds of zooplankton. So there are consequences. It's, it's another case where ecology and conservation looks like uh, a situation where you've got falling dominoes, one affecting another. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, David Quammen. Uh, he'll be presenting at the Shift Festival in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, on October 8th. And uh, you can get more information on that at uh, their website, shiftjh.org. And uh, you're welcome to join this conversation. I hope that you will. If you have a question or comment for David Quammen, uh, the, the toll-free number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Toll-free anywhere you're listening. And uh, you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Before we leave, uh, Franz Joseph Land, uh, I I think our listeners will be fascinated, as as I will, to to hear about real-life encounters with bears, in this case polar bears. This (laughs) quote from you, from, from your article, One bear strides toward us. Suddenly I feel as if we're just three pieces of dark meat on a very white plate. Yeah, that, that, that is one of my most vivid memories from the trip. As we got near the northern part of the archipelago, the Franz Josef Land archipelago, there was one island, I think, as I recall, it was Rudolph Island, where we went ashore, um, and there was, there was a wonderful um, uh, Englishman, a fellow named Paul Rose, who is, was vice president of the Royal Geographical Society at that point. Uh, he's a fellow with lots of polar experience. Um, he's about, he was about 61 or 62 at that point, extremely fit, did a lot of climbing, did a lot of um, diving, did a lot of polar exploration. And he and I decided we were going to go ashore. We had been good sports, letting the other teams have the first choice of activities when things were going ashore, and we were sort of following along and watching and, and facilitating. But we got to this final island that was capped by a glacier, a big white dome-shaped surface of ice, and Paul and I said, okay, now it's our turn. We're going to go up. We want to get to the very top of that dome, um, and at that point, we will be at the highest point in, on the northernmost piece of land um, in the northern hemisphere, and, uh, and so we went hiking up with the Russian um, uh, sort of parks service guide or guard who was with us carrying... Um, an automatic rifle, a Kalashnikov rifle, and the three of us went tromping up there, and when we were nearly to the top, we were wearing crampons to, to climb up the, this, like this great golf ball of ice. Uh, we got very near the top, and we got a radio message from the ship that was a mile away down 
um, in a bay saying, uh, Paul, David, there is a polar bear, and he seems to be coming your way. He seems to smell you. You should get down off there as quickly as possible. Paul and I uh, couldn't bear to pull ourselves away short of the top, so we ran up to the top. We took our GPS readings, and then we came back. The guard at that point was very uh, upset with us, and we started walking down, and there were two polar bears then that started converging on us. We did not want to get hurt, and we did not want to get a polar bear hurt. The guard eventually fired off a flare roughly in the direction of the polar bears. They backed off a little bit, just enough for us to get down um, off of the ice to a safe area. And that's where uh, that thought occurred to me, that suddenly when we were out there, uh, it felt like we were these three pieces of dark meat on a very white plate. (laughs) When you're on a glacier with a polar bear 150 yards away, you're asking yourself, what was I thinking when I came up here? There's the bear, here I am, and he's hungry, and there is nothing in between us except 150 meters of glacier. Mm. Uh, But it worked out okay. There is a fascination with, um, you know, the top predators, uh, polar bears in this case. Maybe make a transition, uh, have you make a transition uh, back to North America and the grizzly bear. You've you've written about grizzly bears, studied them. Um, it's kind of a primal response from us because they're, because of the danger, I guess. It's it's a fascination. What, uh, what's been your oh, experience with the, yeah. with the grizzly? I, as a matter of fact, I did a book on big predators uh, in general back in 2006, I think it was published. Um, titled Monster of God, and it was about man-eating predators around the world, those creatures big enough, solitary enough, um, ferocious enough, such that a single individual of these particular species can and sometimes does kill and eat a human. Uh, And that includes brown bears, of which grizzly bears are are one type, Um, uh, polar bears, uh, saltwater crocodiles, uh, lions, including the lion in India, uh, there is a population of lions in India, um, and uh, and I wrote about um, I wrote about these creatures, uh, their ecological dimension, but also the sort of um, spiritual and imaginative dimension for humans um, to live in to live on a planet and to live in ecosystems. In some cases, that include these creatures that are bigger and more dangerous than us, and that not always, not routinely, but occasionally look at us as another form of meat. And the argument I make in that book is that it's very important, it's salubrious, it's a, it's a healthy reminder to humans that we are part of the food chain, we are part of nature, we're not separate from it, um, detached somehow above it. And yet at the same point time, it's important to remember that in a lot of places, it's very poor people, agricultural people, people who live off the landscape, who, who pay the the price, who pay the costs for um, the continued existence of those big dangerous predators, while those of us who are who are distant um, are the ones who enjoy um, most of the benefits from knowing that um, saltwater crocodiles or, or lions in India and Africa still exist. So hmm. I try to do justice to the, to the human complexities and costs as well as the ecological value of those creatures in that, that book, Monster of God. No, oh, interesting. I'll have to have to check that one out. And I, I'm thinking when it, a lot of times when I think of bears, now that I've had the chance to interview the writer Doug Peacock a couple of times. Oh, uh, yeah, he's a good pal of mine. Doug is a oh, oh, he is. Fan. Yeah, and he credits he credits the solitude, the wilderness, and the bears with bringing him back to some health after the Vietnam War. 
Absolutely. As he described in his great book, Grizzly Years, Doug, as you know, was a, um, was a Green Beret medic in Vietnam. I think he served two terms over there um, in the late 60s, and then he came back to the U.S., and he was all muddled and angry and hurt and confused, and he went out into the into the wilderness of, of Yellowstone and then Glacier National Parks and um, and lived among grizzly bears for long periods of time, uh, studying their behavior and, and taking film of them. And essentially, um, grizzly bears were the path to recovery um, from post-traumatic stress for, for Doug. And he wrote a wonderful book about it. Let's take another break, and we'll come back. We'll have our final segment with uh, David Kwam. And I want to get into these uh, zoonotic diseases and these, again, this uh, there's a fear response here, isn't here? Uh, I'm reading an article from the New York Times that uh, David Kwam wrote. Uh, he says, humans die by large numbers every day, every hour, from heart failure, automobile crashes, dreary effects of poverty, but strange new infectious diseases, even when the death tolls are low, call up a more urgent sort of attention. I want to talk a bit about that and, and some of the latest uh, research on uh, diseases like Ebola. We'll do that following the break. This is State of the Arts. Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged school children from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment here with David Quammen. Uh David Quammen's uh, books include The Song of the Dodo, The Reluctant Mr. Darman, Spillover, Ebola, and this year, The Chimp in the River. Uh, his articles uh, have appeared in National Geographic, Esquire, uh, Powder, The Rolling Stone. He's written op-eds for the New York Times, reviews for the New York T- uh, Times Book Review. He's been honored with uh, an Academy Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He's a three-time recipient of the National Magazine Award writes a lot for National Geographic Magazine, lives in Bozeman, Montana. And he's coming to Jackson, Wyoming for the Shift Festival. His presentation is on October 8th. That's a Thursday. It's at the Center for the Arts in Jackson Hole, and he's presenting on Yellowstone. And an upcoming edition of National Geographic Magazine, the May 2016 edition, is devoted to Yellowstone National Park. And for the first time in their history, National Geographic will uh, feature one writer writing about Yellowstone, and that is uh, David Quammen. Uh, here is a comment that's uh, come in to us. We'll get David Quammen to uh, comment on this. Uh, this person says, Long live national parks. Until we realize that nature must be an integral part of our education, we need them as a reminder of what used to be and what the future could be. Amen. That's all I'd say to that. Yes, okay. I absolutely agree. Very, very important. Showing us, as the uh, as the listener said, uh, both um, what the past looked like and uh, and what the future can still 
um, still contain for our, for our children and grandchildren. If you'd like to comment, uh, or if you have a question, perhaps, for David Quammen, the number is 1-800-826-1495. That's toll-free, 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Tom, can I I add something to what you said about the shift conference and my appearance there next week? Yes. On October 8th, I will be teaming with... um, one of the great photographers who have worked on this uh, Yellowstone project, Charlie Hamilton James. As you said, I, I, I wrote the text for the piece, but, but um, we have had six photographers in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem for much of a year, um, including Nick Nichols, who I've done a lot of my Africa work with, and Charlie Hamilton James, who has been based in Jackson uh, and uh, has been photographing in uh, a number of things, including uh, the otter, the beaver of the Yellowstone ecosystem, the aquatic mammals, and, uh, and Charlie will be uh, sort of previewing some of uh, his work for the Yellowstone issue um, at the uh, at the event on October eighth. Also, Charlie and I will be sort of tag teaming for National Geographic. We'll look forward to that. And uh, by the way, information on that uh, conference is at shiftjh.org. I want to turn to those zoonotic diseases, and I quoted a bit from you from the New York Times that, uh, of course, humans die in large numbers every day. Uh, and there's a tangle of reasons, you say, why uh, strange new infectious diseases bring up, up this fear response. You say one is obvious. Whenever an outbreak occurs, we all ask ourselves whether it might herald the next big one. That's right, the next big one, and I even put that in capital letters. And uh, that's right. Some scientists have talked to me about that. I've said, well, why is it important to study these viruses? And, and one, one scientist in particular, when we were in Bangladesh looking for evidence of a dangerous virus, um, she said, uh, Lisa Jones Engel, she said, well, because we're looking at, uh, ultimately, we're looking uh, for the next big one, meaning the next dangerous new virus that may emerge from an animal host, get into humans, find that it can thrive in humans, replicate in humans, transmit from one human to another, and then potentially spread around the world. Um, and scientists and public health officials around the world are very sensitive, very alert to this possibility. Um, uh, we saw a great scare last summer when, when the Ebola outbreak in West Africa turned into an epidemic affecting tens of thousands of people, killing eventually 11,000 up to this point, uh, and spreading as uh, uh, as little embers carried away by the winds from a forest fire, spreading to the U.S., to Great Britain, to uh, to other points in Africa and elsewhere. And people, some people were concerned that that was going to be the next big one, that Ebola was going to affect huge numbers of people around the world. Ebola is a horrible disease, a very dangerous virus, and yet it's not the right kind of virus um, to um, uh, to cause a global pandemic. Knock wood. I'll knock wood. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There are, there are other kinds of viruses that are more transmissible, even though not quite as virulent, not quite as lethal, that are even more dangerous in terms of the possibility of having huge impacts. And some of those... Uh, are, are so familiar that we tend to take them for granted. For instance, the influenzas. Um, the influenza of 1918, 1920, we now realize killed about 
50 million people around the world. So new viruses that are highly transmissible that um, pass by, uh, uh, by the respiratory route that are airborne and yet have the capacity to kill a large fraction of the people that they infect are highest on the list of those that, that scientists are, uh, and public health officials are, are watching for. The influenzas. And also, you've heard about MERS coming out mm-hmm. of yes. Saudi Arabia. MERS is related to the SARS virus. They belong to the same family of viruses. And um, SARS was a very dangerous virus emerging from southern China in 2003, spreading to Toronto and, and uh, Beijing and uh, Singapore and elsewhere. And, and we stopped it. Um, 9,000 people were infected, about 900 died, about 10% case fatality rate. Um, and yet the, the experts at the time said, well, we really dodged a bullet with SARS. That could have been much, much worse. And that's one of the reasons that there has been a lot of quiet but very focused concern about MERS as the, as the experts waited to see whether that was going to be as dangerous as SARS had been. We have a couple of callers, uh, and we'll welcome them in now to, uh, to talk to with David Quammen. Uh First up is Garth in Menden. Garth, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Oh, thank you. Hey, uh, I've been listening to your program. I'm really interested in Yellowstone. I spent a lot of time there myself. Uh, first of all, I have two questions. Number one, uh, you mentioned that uh, the elk wintering grounds is, uh, are in danger of maybe being sold and subdivided and so on. Is there any move afoot to try to purchase some of those grounds so that the elk could have a, uh, an unfettered area? And the, the number two question is you mentioned that grizzly bears uh, take a big toll in the elk calves. Is the, is the grizzly bear more of a potential danger to the calf than the uh, wolves in Yellowstone? Um, good questions, Garth. Let me take the second one first. Um, the, uh, the impact on elk calves has been strong, um, both from grizzly bear and elk, uh, or excuse me, both from grizzly bear and wolves. Um, and there are complicated reasons why grizzly bears have shifted to preying more on, on elk calves. It has to do with the, um, the disappearance of some of their traditionally, um, um, most preferred foods, such as uh, cutthroat trout, spawning cutthroat trout coming out of Yellowstone Lake. Um, lake trout have been introduced, an exotic species. Lake trout have caused the crash of the cutthroat trout in Yellowstone Lake, and so the huge spawning runs of cutthroat coming out of the lake into feeder streams in the spring have virtually disappeared. So there's a big food source for quite a number of grizzlies that used to depend on cutthroat trout. Those grizzlies now have to um, get that that element of their diet somewhere else, and they're preying more and more on elk calves. In the meantime, of course, we we have um, wolves back in the ecosystem as of 20 years ago, reintroduced in 1995, and they also are taking a toll on elk calves. Now, the elk population has been huge in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, so um, it's not necessarily a bad thing that these, um, these two kinds of carnivores are preying more and more on elk calves, uh, unless, you're, you know, unless you're a cow elk, then it's a very upsetting thing. Um, uh, but um, so what I'm, what I'm saying is that uh, you can't say this factor bears or that factor wolves uh, has had uh, the major impact. They have a combined impact 
uh, and the dynamics of of this interaction are very complicated, and they have to do with um, with uh, what's happening to some of the other food sources that grizzlies have traditionally depended on. In terms of the elk winter range, that the, your your first question, uh, yes, absolutely, people are alert to this uh, this issue that private lands, including just a relatively small number of big ranches along the periphery of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, are really important as elk winter range. And some of those ranches have already um, sort of voluntarily taken a role um, uh, as, as refuges for the elk. Uh, I think of the Pitchfork Ranch in, um, in western Wyoming uh, and a wonderful fellow named Lennox Baker who is, uh, who is protecting the elk on his land and allowing his land to continue to serve as um, winter range for the elk. Some of the other ranches may be sold as uh, you know, as one generation dies and a new generation inherits, there is always that concern. And organizations like the the land trusts of the various states and the Nature Conservancy are working to try and um, try and get conservation easements on some of those lands to protect them in perpetuity for the elk. Um, but it's you know, it's there's a hundred different situations, a hundred different factors, and it's different case to case. Uh, Garth, uh, glad you called. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Uh, next up is Bettina in Springdale. Glad you called, Bettina. Go ahead. Yes. Um, I wanted to address the ideas of the viruses that that trying to control the viruses like Ebola. And uh, if you look at the ecosystem, isn't this the way that nature is trying to rebalance the ecosystem on the planet? Um, should man always be the only one that thrives on the planet and if we you know it's like maybe it's time for us to kneel to nature and come to the wisdom of nature in rebalancing the planet with you know we do a really good job of our own wars and everything of wiping everybody out but um, sometimes nature you know the animals they don't have swords they don't have guns they don't have drones but um, they have viruses that can develop and yeah. help well, control you know, the ecosystem. I, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. It's a very interesting point. I'm going to agree with you about halfway um, that, um, that these viruses do result, uh, these viruses emerging into human populations do result from our disruptions of very diverse natural ecosystems. Humans more and more are going in to places such as the tropical forest in Africa and elsewhere. And we're cutting and we're burning and we're killing animals for food and exporting them live to markets. Uh, and there are consequences of that. And, and one form of consequence is viruses. All of those creatures carry viruses. And when we humans go in there disrupting and shaking things up, we offer viruses um, a new host, a new potential um, set of victims. The, uh, the human population, um, and so so these infections and these outbreaks that turn into epidemics and epidemics that turn into pandemics are absolutely yes consequences of things we're doing by way of disrupting nature. Um, I said I agree with you about halfway. I, uh, let's say I agree with you about seventy-five percent. The twenty-five percent is that I would I would just want to remind people that nature doesn't have purposes. These are consequences that come from us disrupting nature. But I don't 
I don't believe that there is a mother nature who is deciding that the revenge of the rainforest will be to inflict these viruses on humans. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that that's necessarily what you were saying either. There is a metaphorical sense in which that's true. But in the literal sense, it's merely a matter of the consequences of what we're doing and the opportunities that are given to viruses to, to leap from one kind of host that may be an endangered species of primate to another kind of host that may be a primate that dominates the world that, that numbers 7 billion around the world. And, and when a virus makes that tr transition, then that virus is, has won the sweepstakes. Thanks, Bettina. Appreciate your, your call. And, uh, and we're, uh, we're out of time. Uh, we'll have to, uh, so uh, I wanted to ask a couple more questions on, on these zoonotic diseases. We have to read the July issue, I believe, you talk about AIDS and, and spillover and the new books as well. David Quammen, and uh, you could go and hear about Yellowstone on October 8th. Uh, David Quammen will be presenting on Yellowstone at the SHIFT conference, and that is in Jackson, Wyoming, um, on October 8th. Uh, David Quammen, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tom. Pleasure to talk with you, and I really appreciate your interest. And uh, we hope you'll join us tomorrow. We'll be talking with Betsy Damon, environmental activist, artist, planner, and designer. She creates large-scale art parks featuring sculptural flow forms and public art events to help clean urban waterways and raise water awareness around the globe. That's tomorrow on the program. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today. An encounter of the wildest kind on the conversation today with two women who live among elephants in Kenya and Thailand. From being christened by an elephant's breath to helping raise a baby elephant to hearing the screams of an elephant in agony. Hear them talk about the moments that have helped shape their devotion to the large mammal today. And what is it that keeps them doing what they do? That's on the program about women by women for everyone with me, Kim Chakaneta. After the news. Join us for the BBC today at 2 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at USU.